Good morning. Well, it is a privilege to, to be here, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to spend this uh, time this morning with you. I, I uh, see new faces and a, and a few that are familiar. It's been a while since I've been here. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Robert Knobert. It does rhyme, you can laugh. I am no relation to Evil Knievel or Awful Knoffel. Just Robert Knobert. Uh, I am dear Sharon's most favorite loving older brother. I want to share a few thoughts with you this morning. I I don't know, uh, I suppose you could call it a sermon if you want, but uh, to me they're just thoughts, my thoughts, and uh, you know we're living in interesting times, aren't we? We're living in a time that uh, everyone is on one side or another. There's there's very few fence sitters right now. And uh, we're we're living in a time where everyone thinks they're on the right side. And there's this tremendous drive to be on the right side. We've been dealing with COVID and all the ramifications of that uh, disease. And there's all kinds of things swirling around out there about that, isn't there? Where did it come from? Was it made or was it natural? Do we get the vaccination? Do we not? There's a side to everything, isn't there? I find that interesting. You know, I'm reminded of the story in scripture of this publican who is standing on the corner saying, portraying to everyone his rightness because he paid tithe, he wore the right clothes, he said the right things. He was right. And he was showing his right or righteousness. He was on the right side. And the Bible says that, that uh, there stood afar off a sinner. Someone who wanted to be right. But someone who saw the right and thought, there's no way that I could ever possibly attain that level, that standard. I was not born into the right family. I do not wear the right clothes. I do not have the right offering. And his only conclusion, the only thing that he could think of was, as he beat his chest and cried out and said, Lord, have what? Mercy on me. And what did Jesus say about the two? Which one went home justified? Which one went home right? It was the sinner. He said, Lord, have mercy on me. I believe that there is a fundamental wrongness that is in all of us. And I think that we've inherited that from our original parents, from Adam and Eve, if you will. There's something about human nature right now, as it exists in this world, that is fundamentally wrong. And yet we are driven to be right. Would you agree with that? How many of you don't want to be right? Oh, good. I mean, isn't that what the fight of every husband and wife is over who's right? And all of us men know that we are really the ones who are right. We just let them think that they're right. And they're thinking the same thing. We just let them think they're right. But we know who's really right. Really, everything about our world is about being right, isn't it? You look at the Cold War between the United States and Russia. Which one was right? Well, the one that was not communist was the one that was right, right? 
Well, to the communist mind, no. The communist was right. And so we had this impasse called the Cold War. There's this incessant drive. We are driven to be right. To achieve rightness. Something we can never be because of our inherent wrongness. Yeah, we strive for that. We want it so bad. We want to feel right. We want to be right. We want everything around us to be just the way we want it. Isn't that true? And when we get everything just the way we want it, that's good, isn't it? Well, sometimes. And then there are those who would lower the bar of rightness even to the point of getting rid of God because ultimately that's where morals come from. So if we get rid of God, well then that standard is is lowered, right? Therefore it's easier to be right because now there's no more righteous morals in this world there's no more you know standard for us to have to live up to so basically i can do just about anything i want and be right that's the inevitable result when you carry it out to its length so what do we what do we strive for How is it that we should act and respond in this world that is more divisive, more derisive, more on edge? How do we relate as a church, as Christians? How do we reach? How do we stand up for the truth and what is right? How are we to be when we are just as much part of the problem? I mean, we have churches we have churches that say, that say, we are Christian, we believe in God, and, and, and we are following him, therefore we are right. But wait a minute. I just mean our church is right, not the one down the road, or the one down that way, or the one across the street. Not the Methodists, not the Catholics, not the Baptists. They all have a part of right, but we have all the right. Right? All right. Boy, you're so agreeable. So we are just as much a part of the problem. It's part of who we are. We we are built through sin to conflict over our our desire to be right when we cannot be right. We want to have the right beliefs. Why do we want to have the right beliefs? Well, because if we have the right beliefs, and that makes us what? Right. Oh, it just works. Are you perhaps beginning to see the problem? There's a lot of things in Scripture I am not the oldest person in this world. I have not seen what a lot of other people have seen. Then again, I'm older than a lot of people in this world, and I've seen a lot more than a lot of people have seen. I studied scripture. I have a degree in theology. I have preached truths and rights all of my adult life. And yet I find that the older I get, things used to be a lot more complicated. And what that meant is I made things more complicated. We like complicated things. Because when something's complicated and I can explain it, well, what does that make me? Makes me right. It looks good, feels good. I got the degree, I got the title, I got the job, right? So, as I, as I get older, as, I, as my walk with God probably, I would say, becomes more real, I find I need things to be simpler. 
I find that all the, the simple, all, all the answers that I thought I had, maybe sometimes were not the best answers. I find in Scripture that, that there are certain bedrock truths that, that I go to, that I, that I cling to, that I want, and that help me function in today's world certain bedrock truths now bedrock is is when, when you're building a building and you know if you if you're if you're building on ground that's mixed it's got gravel and sand and dirt and clay and you want a, a structure that's not going to fall down you got to go down to the bedrock to where there's no cracks where it's solid that's bedrock you got to dig down past the sand past all the trash, the roots and the, and the gunk and the junk, and you got to establish that building on the bedrock. And so this part of my life, this part of my journey, is I'm looking for that bedrock. What is it in Scripture that I can nail down and count on regardless, that can't be misinterpreted, that can't be right in someone else's eyes, and wrong in my eyes, or right in my eyes, and wrong in someone else's eyes. And I want to share with you a few of these bedrock truths that, that, that I found that, that work for me. Now, the first thing is that <clears throat> everyone has bedrock truths in their lives, whether they realize it or not. Everyone has bedrock truths. Everyone has somewhere inside of them, somewhere in their thinking, somewhere in their upbringing, things that they depend on, that they build their life and understanding on. That's a bedrock truth. Now, it may or may not really be bedrock, but for you, it is. For me, it is. And here's what I found. That someone who doesn't believe in God, let's say someone who is an evolutionary scientist, Denies the reality of God, or denies that God is, is, is a reality. Well, that is a bedrock truth for them. But the funny thing is, that bedrock truth can only exist in the realm of faith. Because they can neither prove or disprove God. So you have to have a certain amount of faith to believe in evolution, don't you? Well, I think you have to have a lot of faith. I think, in fact, you have to have more faith to believe in evolution than you do have to believe in God. But that's just me. My point is that regardless of, of what your belief about God is, whatever your belief is, you have to have faith to believe it. Because some, at some point in all of human existence, as we reach down, as we reach back, we get to a point that is out of our reach. I can only go back so far in my memory. I wish I could, but I don't remember when Adam and Eve was created. I was not there. I have no recollection of it other than what I read, right? I have no way of knowing for sure that the earth was made billions and billions and billions of years ago, like some say. I wasn't there. I don't know of anybody or anything that was there that can speak anyway. So at some point, everyone has to have a degree of faith in whatever their bedrock beliefs are. Does that make sense? I, I must be right. But maybe not. Faith is important to the human being. If I did not have a certain amount of faith, I would not leave the door in the morning. Because my goodness, what can happen to me on the way to work or on the way to the grocery store? A jet can fall out of the sky and land right on top of me. There could be an earthquake. There could be a tornado. There could be some maniac with a gun. I might lose my way. Car may run out of gas. Every one of us, every human being on this planet employs faith every day or you would not leave the house. You don't have to sit there and think every day, okay, now how do I get to work? I have to go out after I'm dressed and bathed and, and, and eat and all that stuff. And I get in my car and I have to turn the key, start it up, and then I have to go down my driveway and, and let me see, do I go right or left? I mean, if you have to think through that process every morning, you're in trouble, aren't you? As an adult, anyway. 
What happens is we do it once or twice, three times, maybe ten times, and it gets embedded in us. We no longer have to think about it. We have faith that it's there. We have faith in the unseen. I don't know what's around the corner, but I know I'm going around the corner. And I have faith because nine times out of ten that I go around that corner, nothing happens. And I make it to work. I make it to the grocery store. I don't even think twice about it because I have faith based on past experience. I have faith that things are going to work out just right. And I'll get to where I'm going. Every human being has some level of faith in order just to function in life. You have to. Now, once you decide what your bedrock beliefs are, then you have to exercise your faith. So for me, my number one bedrock belief is that there is a creator God. There is a creator God. Now, I accept that totally on faith. I can't say, to, you know, here's my Bible, and literally this is where my Bible is these days. So when, when I ask you to turn to Scripture, I'm going to be trying to find it out on here. I'm not good at it like some of the young people. But I've made that determination through experience in my life that there is a creator God. Not because the Bible says so. Because the Bible is just a book. You can bury it in the ground and it will rot. The Bible is not proof. Although there are proofs in the Bible. There are things I can turn to in the Bible that prove to me. But in general, it's just a book. It is no more proof than to take some supposed radioactive particles that I can't see coming out of a rock and say that rock is a billion zillion years old proof is in the pudding so to say and I've had some pudding in my life and so I believe that God is real and that there's a creator God now once I've made that determination in faith that what that does is that kind of it it cuts some things away right Because I believe that, that means I automatically disbelieve a number of other things. Now that doesn't mean that there isn't some value out there or some things to be learned in other areas and other things. But what it means when I say I believe in God, that also is saying that I believe I shouldn't be killing people. Right? So when I exercise that faith and say I believe that there is a creator God, that means that I accept certain things and I have to go back and over and back and forth and, oh, what do I do? And I also deny certain things in this world that other people may accept. So right away I'm setting up a situation in which I'm right and there are those who are wrong. But that's okay. So there is a creator God, I believe that. That is that my fundamental bedrock truth that guides me. No matter what happens to me, no matter what I do, no matter what I say, no matter how I act, no matter how I drink or dress or whatever, none of that matters. What matters is that there is a creator God and it is not determined by me or my actions. It is because he is. And he says so, I am. The second bedrock bedrock truth that I have is this. Now, this, 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 this may ruffle some feathers. It's okay for you to be right and me to be wrong. And it's okay for me to be right and you to be wrong, all right? The Bible is his effort to speak to humankind. But he is not limited to it. And to an extent, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. Absolutely. Do you know that the Bible says it's okay to smoke camel cigarettes? Do they even make camel cigarettes anymore? I don't know. But you know it's a, where it talks about where uh, who, who was it was it uh, was it Jacob that lit off his camel? <laughs> it's in the Bible. It must be okay. 
You, I mean, I lived in Waco, Texas, pastored the church there for four or five years. I know all about people making the Bible say whatever they want it to say. You can make the scripture, if if there's something you want to believe, if there's something you want to do, you can find a text someplace and use it to justify your wrongness. But I believe it is God's effort to speak to humankind. And so as I choose in faith to believe in a creator God, I choose in faith to read through scripture, and I know that as I read through scripture, seeking for him, that he will reveal himself to me, not in the little things I hear, and they're not in, you know, I can also look for excuses in scripture to deny it. You know, if there's, if, if there really is a God who's a God of love, which the Bible says, then why would he tell his people to do all those horrible things that they did in the Old Testament? I can use scripture to deny God too. Isn't that strange? But when I search the scripture, understanding that it's merely God's effort to speak to me, then I can find truths, bedrock truths, that work for me, that he speaks to me through. Now, whether they're right or wrong, you know, that's between me and God. And you may want to point a finger at me, and I may want to point a finger at you, say, you're right, you're wrong. It really doesn't matter, does it? What matters is what God thinks. So the Bible is his effort to speak to humankind, but he's not limited to it, and it can also be twisted. I have to understand that. The third bedrock truth that I believe and that is so vitally important to me in these days as we try to, to, to push away all the, the fluff and all the junk and try and get at what, what are we supposed to be doing? What is my responsibility is this? He, God, is by virtue and by make good, moral, just, And he doesn't change. As it applies to his nature, his nature of righteousness, that doesn't change. Now, it's not to say that God doesn't change. He he changes his mind. Scripture refers to that a few times. He changed his mind. And there's also also the the, the strange act that God does that's, that's different than what he's usually done. God says to look for new things. Does his grace, his mercy is new and fresh every morning. So it's not that there's never change in God. It's not that he never that he always does things exactly the same way, but when it comes to his nature, who he is, in his nature, that does not change. His character does not change. He is always good. He is always just. He is always moral. Now what this means practically to me is when I get to an area of scripture, that would appear to be portraying God out of character, as in, go wipe out that entire clan, that family. Go do this, go do that, and and I don't like that. I have to be able to say, okay, I don't understand that situation. After all, I wasn't there. I don't know. This seems unclear. But I know God is good, kind, and just. Therefore, I choose to believe and cling to the idea and the thought and the relationship with a God who is good, kind, and just. And I determined that I'll just wait to heaven to get the down low on some of that other stuff that I don't understand. You see, because if you don't do that, either you deny it, and people can use that to disprove your faith, or you'll get lost in it. There's some things that you just cannot know. And you have to be okay with that. And again, this is where faith comes in. I have to believe that my God is always good, always moral, always just. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to James 
We'll see which is faster here. Human beings or technology. James chapter 1. But all I have to do is not tell you the entire text until I get there. Then I win every time. James chapter 1, starting with verse 17. This is one of my bedrock fundamental truths that I rely on. I just had it. There it is. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. That's important. Remember that. Comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. That's bedrock. You've got to know. If there is anything good in this world, where does it come from? It comes from God. If there is anything good in me, where does it come from? Because if it doesn't come from God, then I have a right to boast about it. Right? I was going to say something, I decided I better not. So, God is good. Through and through. And even though sometimes it may not appear that way, I have to have that bedrock belief that he is. And there may just be some things I don't understand, but I can survive on that. I can thrive on that. But I also need to know that because he is good and all good things come from him, anything in me that might be good is what? From him, or it's not good. Or it's motivated by my driving need to be right. Number four, my fourth bedrock truth. Humankind had the chance to be 99.9% reflective of God, but chose not to be. Now let me unpack that a little because this is a new thought for me as I was preparing for this. So it's a brand new thought to me. Can the sun be anything other than the sun? No, it's the sun. Can the moon ever be the sun? No. Impossible. It might try, but it just can't do it if a moon could try. So here we have in the beginning and the very creation and the nature that we get to witness every day an example of God and the order of how he made things and how he functions. If God is the sun, who is the moon? If God is the sun, who is the moon? Any thoughts? Jesus? We're going to go there. There you go. Glory. Title of my sermon. Do you know that the word in the, in the Old Testament for glory, it's, it's translated in several different ways, but it's, its fundamental root meaning is to shine. What does the sun do? Shine, because not because it, it can, but because it is. It is the sun. It has no choice but to shine. God's glory is his shining. It's his Inherent rightness that shines and gives light. James referred to him as the father of what? Father of lights. So he is the primary light. The sun is our primary light. Our secondary light comes from where? The moon. And the moon only reflects the sun. The moon doesn't reflect itself. The moon doesn't show itself. The sun shows the moon. The moon reflects the sun. 
God made human beings. Now, this may be shaky ground for some people. I'm not sure what I think about it, but this is where, where my thinking is going. God made man and women, woman, humankind, like he made the moon to reflect the sun. He made us not to be God, but to reflect him. He made us in his likeness and his image. The moon is round just like the sun. It it is made up of something just like the sun. It has an orbit just like the sun. It has similarities to the sun, but it is not the sun. We are not God. Never can be, never could be. The only way we can maintain our eternalness would be if we ate from the tree because it's not in us in the same way perhaps humankind was never made to be right we were made to reflect to reflect god to reflect godliness to reflect his rightness to reflect his righteousness all around us now, I know some of you have been out here, especially out here in the country, on, on a cloudless, moonlit night, and it's pretty bright, isn't it? Even in our darkness, we can reflect the light of God. But perhaps we were never meant to be right. We were never created to be right. We were meant to be reflective. And you see, isn't this the whole point of the temptation in the garden? Oh, God, God, you're like God. You are God. You don't need God because you are God. Isn't that the nature of that temptation? Take this fruit and you're going to be just like him. You don't need him then. Because you will be God. Perhaps that explains why there's this intense drive in humanity to be right. There's this intense drive within religion to be right. If I can just know the right truths and do the right things, then I will be right, right? And then when I am right, then God can save me. That's the teaching of almost every Christian church. Some to one degree of rightness compared to others. But what if we are all wrong? What if we're all wrong? Humankind had the chance to be 99.9% reflective of God, but chose not to be. And I put it that way to mean that we could be almost just like God, but not quite, because we aren't. And we can never make up that one-tenth of a percent of difference. Never. In a million years. No matter how hard we try, no matter what we do to humanity, no matter what scientific discoveries we make, we will never be God. Ever. We may come close by creating a computer that can do everything right. Right? But everything right that the computer does will be because it's been programmed by someone who's wrong. So it can never do everything right. Well, it gets so confusing, doesn't it? Well, you know, trying to live a good Christian life can be very confusing sometimes, can it? We had an opportunity to be right in our role as reflectors. but we chose wrongness. Therefore, our thinking and our understanding is fundamentally flawed by wrongness. And that, this is the bedrock truth, that is something that I must admit if I'm ever going to achieve any level of rightness. I've got to admit that I am wrong. I am totally wrong. I've missed the boat. I don't measure up. And unless I'm willing to admit that, then I cannot take a step toward God, who is right, and start being reflective of Him.
Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 17. In verse 9. Jeremiah 17 verse 9. says this. The heart is deceitful above most things. Isn't that what it says? All things. That means when you think you're at your very best, you're not. There's some people who are at their very best in this world. Tom Brady has been at his very best for a long time. But he's not. Every time he loses, he's not. He may be one of the most winning quarterbacks but every time he loses, he proves he is not. Because the best is like the end. Finito. Right? There, there's, there's no doubts. It's it. It's settled. It's done. It's final. Again, by virtue of our humanity, because we don't live forever, there's no way any of us can be the best. Because as long as people go on, there will always be somebody who comes along and does better. You know, for the longest time it was thought that a human being cannot run faster than a four-minute mile. It was impossible. People got close. They tried tried and tried, and pretty soon they just gave up. It was impossible. It could not be done until one day a guy by the name of Roger Bannister ran a mile in under four minutes. And after that, well, look at the record books. There is no one who performs professionally in running events that doesn't do under a four-minute mile. People are repeatedly, often running under a four-minute mile. I don't know what the record is now, but given long enough, I bet there will be somebody who beats it. Because our mind tells us things and we believe our mind. And for the longest time, people believed, oh, no one can run a four-minute mile. The minute they saw it done, oh, everyone can run a four-minute mile. Seemingly. The human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know, and I, find, I found this in my life, in my, in my earlier life as a Christian. In my desire to be a good, faithful, obedient Seventh-day Adventist, I don't keep, keep the Sabbath, I don't steal, I don't cheat, I don't worship any idols. I'm doing the right things, right? And I would think that I'm doing those right things. But in Acts, the scripture says that in him, referring to Jesus, in him we live and move and breathe and have our being. Anything that I might do, anything that you might catch me doing that's right, is coming from where? Any good thing that I do is coming from where? From God. But boy, I remember when I was in Sab school class, and at the beginning of class, they'd say, well, how many? They had that little checklist. How many Bible studies have you given this week? How many articles of clothing have you donated? How? And we had this list. And I don't even make fun of that. And, you know, it's still being done for all I know. It's, it's not the point. The point is we tend to look at these things and want to do these things because... We think doing them is the right thing to do and we want to be right rather than doing them naturally out of the nature of who we are, which doesn't need to keep track of those sort of things. But we like to keep track of those things so that we can say, look, our church has donated this amount of money. We've done this amount of things. We've done this amount of things. And we make the list and we post it as if there's some sort of spiritual envy awards for the best church. Because we want to be right and we want to give proof, evidence of why we are right. How is it possible that doing right can be so wrong? 
But sometimes it is. Because if it's not God, if we don't acknowledge it of God as God, if we're taking the credit for it, then what are we doing? Isn't that really blasphemy? To say that we're doing something that God is actually doing? Isn't that kind of like saying, well, we're God? It's what they got all over Jesus' case for. The human heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? But God says, because he's above it all, because he is God, because he is the Son, he is the Creator, there is no shadow of turning in him. He's always the same. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, his character is kind, loving, just, always, no matter what. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart and try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. In other words, God knows your motivations. By the way, that phrase, the trying of the reins, what that means literally is looking at the kidneys. Because back in the day, part, part, part of the soothsaying crowd Part of the fortune-telling crowd is they would get the kidneys, put them in the bowl and look at them and determine the future from that. That's literally where that phrase comes from, the trying of the reins. God looks at us on the inside. He knows the end from the beginning. The Bible says he knows our end from the beginning. He says it in that order for a reason. But he knows our end from the beginning. He looks at us on the inside. He knows our motivations. He knows our purpose. He knows what we're created for. He knows how we're living. And he's able to divine what the truth is about us. Are we truly desiring to be reflective of him? Are we just wanting things to go our way so we can be right? The human heart is deceitful above all things. So, I am fundamentally fundamentally flawed by wrongness, and unless I can admit the totality of my wrongness, I will never be able to achieve any level of rightness or righteousness. My fifth bedrock truth is this. Who we are being is reflective of who we are believing. How I'm showing up my actions towards other people is a reflection of who I believe, who I believe in. Now, if I'm a good enough person, quote unquote, then I'm going to get a certain standard of being good to people and kind to people and just to people. But boy, don't you push me too far. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I can, I mean, there's a point where I can only take it up to here. And then, you know, I, all my goodness is washed away. There's that saying, I have one nerve left and you're on it. If it's left to me, there's, there's only so much that I can do of my own human volition, volition. Some people have a, a stronger constitution than others, so therefore... Some people can just make themselves do the right things just because they're strong enough to do that, whereas other people are just weak. And and we fall everywhere on that spectrum. Who I am, how I am being, what comes out of my life is a reflection of who I believe in. Am I believing in myself? Am I believing in another human being? Or am I believing in an eternal God who is a creator? and who is always loving, kind, just, and true. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. i got to wrap this up. i got a whole other page to go through. Matthew chapter 22. And verse... Looks like 34, if I can read my own writing. Matthew 22, verse 34. 
We have a story here about a group of people who so desperately wanted and needed to be right. Their reputation was at stake. Was at stake. Their, their position of power was at stake. They had to be right. And Jesus was just messing it all up. And so they came to him and said, when, when, when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, you know, they got along with the Sadducees and, until they got in a direct fight with each other, then Pharisees always wanted to be right. So in this case, they were happy that the Sadducees got put to silence. It's like, oh, those silly Sadducees. Let the real men take care of this now. When they had heard that he put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer... And what is, what is being a lawyer all about? It's about being right, isn't it? One of them was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And Jesus being Jesus didn't stop at just one. He said, hey, you get a two for her, two for, two for, two for here, right? But wait, there's more. And the second one is like it. Now, this was not part of the deal. The Pharisee just wanted one. Jesus always messed things up for them. Okay, so Jesus said, the second one is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now we know from Scripture, because we know that the Pharisees and Sadducees were were wrong, right? We know that. We know they did not love their neighbors because they were always right. So that precluded them from having to love their neighbors because they were right. Isn't that funny? But here's the thing. The only two verses we ever quote there is that. What's the verse right after that? Verse 40. It says, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The Pharisees were part of the law and the prophets. They were the law. They knew the scripture inside and out. Jesus said, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. If you have something hanging on the rope... And that rope is cut. What happens to what's hanging on it? Falls, right? Jesus said, all of the law, all of the prophets hang on these two principles. If you do not love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, then it doesn't matter what day you keep. Doesn't matter if you worship an idol or not. It's what he's saying. Because that is the bedrock for Jesus. You must love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Now here's the problem. If the human heart is deceitful above all things, how can I possibly say I love God with all my heart, soul, and mind? Because usually I reserve just a little bit for me, don't I? And furthermore, if I don't love God with all my heart, soul, and mind... How can I possibly love my neighbor as myself? You know what? Forget God. How can I possibly love my neighbor as myself? You know, if I'm hungry, and my neighbor's hungry, who's going to eat first? I may share. (laughs) But isn't that true? If there is no God, if there's no moral, if there's no moral rightness in the world that comes from God, what earthly possibility is there of me ever loving somebody as equally as I love myself? It ain't going to happen. There's no fixing stupid. I can't do it. I might be nice for a time. Nice for a while. If things are abundant for me, I can afford to give away. But the minute I'm don't have, I'm not giving. And if I find it, I'm keeping it. I like that saying, get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can and don't share it with anyone else. 
You see, it doesn't matter in terms of eternity, in terms of salvation, in terms of religion, in terms of church. It doesn't matter if you're a lying, cheating killer. If you don't love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and if you don't love your neighbors by yourself, uh, as you love yourself, and the fact is, because the human heart is deceitful above all things, I may think I do, but I don't. Because I am inherently wrong. There is no rightness in me. In fact, in, uh, in Isaiah, there's this verse, and you all remember, and I want to take the time to turn there, because I want to get through here. But it says, there is none righteous. None, not, not one. In fact, our righteousness is as what? filthy rag I cannot be I was you know and and, and here's the thing in my upbringing I knew I could not be because we're taught we're we're not we're taught that verse but on the other hand we're, we're also taught that we should strive to be and so we end up living a life of this constant beating our heads to the wall, feeling guilty because we'll never measure up, we can never be, or doing enough by our own internal strength, thinking that we're doing it, only to find out at some point that we failed miserably. And what a miserable experience. And now I see, well, what is the possibility? If I can just, from up front, say, hey, I'm not right, can never be right. I don't even have to try to be right. Because I know anything I try to do that is right is tainted by wrongness. What I have to be is dead. Dead to myself. And alive through Christ. I need to let his righteousness cover me. I need to let his life take the place of my life. And whatever good may be coming out of my life, I've got to give him the glory. I've got to shine or reflect back the light to him that says, it's him, not me. I've got to have the faith that that the Bible means what it says when it says that there is enmity in our hearts, collectively human beings, towards Christ as he was dying on the cross for me. That there is a God who loves me so much despite my inability to be right. He was willing to sacrifice himself so that I can be in heaven, so that I can be a, a, a mere moon to his glory. The whole point of it all is to teach us. We can't do it. We need God to rescue us. We need God to make us a reflection of him. That's the only way. And we have to accept that by faith. We have to believe by faith that he can do that. Otherwise, we'll try to do it, and then we'll be able to boast. And the Bible says we can't do that. It wouldn't be right. So then what should our attitude be? What is required of us? Now, I, 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 just, I want to stop right here because I, I don't want to keep you all longer if you're bored or whatever. I got about 10 minutes, or I could wrap it up right now. What do you want? All right, so. <laughs> oh, I love you, brother. <laughs> So anyone who needs to go, I, and I mean this sincerely, completely, feel free. You can get up and leave, and they may judge you, but I won't. All right, so if you need to go, that's all right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and get through this pretty quick here. So what is required of us? God, I find, has made it very, very simple. My righteousness is like a filthy rag. There's, there's no one who is. I'm not right, never will be. I was not made to be right. I was made to reflect, to embody, not to be. My attitude should be this, that of that sinner who stood far off, beating my chest, saying, God, have mercy on me. Because in that very moment when I feel I am the most right, I am the most wrong. And I need God's mercy in those moments. This is what I found that my action should be instead of trying to be right all the time, instead of trying to do right all the time. If you turn with me to Micah, chapter 6. 
Micah chapter 6. And verse 8. I find that this is one of my bedrock truths. God makes it very simple. This is where it's at for me. This is what I found to work. Because there's very few places in Scripture where God says, do this, right? And, and, and like most people, if you just tell me what to do, then I can do it. And you notice when Jesus was talking about the two great commandments, he didn't say, go and do them. He just said what they were. So there are very few places in Scripture where God actually says, this is what I expect of you. And so if you find a place like that, you should maybe take notice of it, right? This is what I found in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So simple. It's also the hardest thing in the world to do. You know why it's hard? Because sometimes my right, my my sense of justice can overpower me, right? We have whole movements of people arranged on their ethnicity, looking for justice. And then the other group of people wants justice. And everyone's clamoring for justice. They want to be just. But, you know, when we come before God, who's the only one who's just? And who's the ones who deserve punishment? All of us. So, doing justly isn't just that simple, even though it's simple. Love mercy. I love mercy because I need it. And I haven't always felt that way. I have to admit it, there have been times in my Christian walk I haven't felt the need for mercy because, well, I was right. (laughs) But now I'm at a point in my life where I realize I need mercy. And I love mercy. But here's the problem. I love mercy for you too until you go too far. Because then you you become wrong to me and you need to be punished by my justness. So it's simple, but it's not. But this is where it starts. We want to get people right off the bat, doing this, eating this, watching this. This is where it starts. Coming before God. Letting him animate you so that the actions that come out of your life are just acts. So that you love mercy, not just for yourself, but for everyone around you. And finally, to walk humbly with your God. Now that humbly, is, humble is a, is, a, is, a, is a weird word. We have our own caricatures of, of humble. Humble does not mean groveling in the dust, thinking the worst of yourself. What it does mean is not walking around thinking, the, thinking you're the best of everyone. In our verse for today that was read, if you will turn back with me to Jeremiah chapter 9. Starting with verse 23. Notice in Jeremiah, God says three things. And I find it very interesting because they line right up perfectly with what Micah says. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. See, that lines up with do justly. In order to do justly, you have to have wisdom. Now, in man's wisdom... We judge incorrectly most of the time. Would you agree to that? We judge according to what our eyes see, 
because that's all we have. We don't judge according to a person's heart because we can't see it. We don't judge according to a person's background and experience of what they've been through because we weren't there. We judge only by what we see. You did that. You stole that apple. That's it. Throwing the book at you. That's our version of justly. It's not God's. So let not man glory in his wisdom. Let not man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Sorry, I lined that up wrong. Wisdom goes with love mercy, doing justly, goes with might, and the riches go with walk humbly. You shouldn't walk around. I mean, I've seen some videos of these, these guys. Like, for instance, I saw, <laughs> I saw a short video clip of Evander. I think it was Evander Holyfield. Great boxer. One of the best boxers. And he's sitting in his house and he had stacks of money all around him. Just stacks of millions of dollars. Any point. That's a million over there. That's three million over there. He likes to have his money in cash. Gold chains around his neck. Rings on his fingers. That's a man glorying in his riches. Now he earned them. I have no problem with that. Doesn't matter to me. But that's what this is talking about. If we're walking around glorying in our riches, glorying in our belongings, glorying in all the things we've hard to get, worked hard to get, then we're not giving the glory to God. We're not being reflective of Him. Now if we're walking and saying, see what God gave me? See what God provided for me? Let me tell you how He gave it to me. Let me tell you how it came to pass. Let me tell you what God did for me. There's no way that this could have happened on its own. Only by God's grace. We need to be reflective. So these three things, Jeremiah says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth, let him that shines, let him that wants to boast, glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, which exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. So if the Lord's eyes are roaming to and fro across the earth, and he sees this little glint of light reflecting off a little broken piece of mirror, his eyes stop there and he looks and he sees you because you're reflecting him. That's what he's looking for. He's not looking for people to be right. He's looking for people to reflect him. So, trying to get rid of every sense of me being right, I'd like to invite you in this world that has gone awry to find your way to God and reflect him. And let him use you to love the very people who would hate you. Let him use you to feed the very people that you might look at and say, get a job. Let him use you to touch the broken lives that are all around us, even in this church, of people who are desperately wanting to be right. And let them feel the rightness of God through your touch, through your words, through your actions. And then you'll be the moon to his son. And he'll say when he comes, well done, my good and faithful servant. Thank you for your graciousness and allowing me to ramble on. Let's pray. O oh, our Father in heaven, our kind, loving, just God, our righteous Savior, our Creator, our Recreator. I beg today, Father, you have mercy on me, on all of us sinners.
that you would live in us, live in our hearts, that we would reflect you in our families, in our church, in our community, that people would be drawn to that reflection of your love and grace and mercy and help us to walk with great humility that you would dare use such a sinner as I and that you would call me a saint. It's a mystery. You love us so much. You gave your one and only son to die for us. And for this, Father, we thank you. In all of our wrongness, we thank you. You are right, and you are true, and you are faithful. And the good work that you've begun in us, you will be faithful to complete it. And we can have faith in that. Bless us now as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.